Before we begin, we'd like to honor Frank Watkins, activist and longtime lieutenant of Reverend Jesse Jackson. Watkins is one of the guests in this week's show. He passed away after we recorded the episode. Our thoughts and prayers are with his family and his loved ones. African-American icon. I am somebody. Fierce civil rights soldier. If Jesse can come from nowhere and be somebody, I can be somebody too. An unapologetically outspoken activist. We may be in prison, but the prison is not in us. Just some of the ways legendary political strategist and Rainbow Push Coalition founder Jesse Jackson has been described. But what lit the fire that would spark movements? I am somebody. I may be poor. What shaped the destiny of one of the nation's most celebrated leaders? More than 600,000 blacks unregistered. Reagan won Pennsylvania by the margin of despair. By the margin, the fracture of our coalition, your time has come. Pick up your slingshot, pick up your rock, red, yellow, black, and white. We're all precious in God's sight. Our time has come. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Jesse Jackson. I'm Brandon Poe. Today, we speak with three people who know about the life of Reverend Jesse Jackson. His son, current congressional candidate Jonathan Jackson. People ask, what is Jesse Jackson running for? And he would say, you don't know where I'm running from. Journalist and two-time Jackson biographer Barbara Ann Reynolds. He said, told you so. I told you I'd be the best damn bastard you've ever seen. And Jackson's longtime friend and collaborator, Frank Watkins. I think Reverend Jackson changed politics forever. Coming up, Jackson's journey out of poverty, Selma, and Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. Also, Jackson's run for president and the controversies that held him back. All that and more today on Making. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Welcome to Making Jesse Jackson. Thank you all for being here today. So Barbara Ann Reynolds, I'd like to start by asking you about your early moments with Reverend Jackson. You started reporting for the Chicago Tribune in the early 70s, and you covered Jackson, and you encouraged the Trib to cover him even more. So I'd like to know, when did you know that you wanted to write a biography on him? Well, I remember that day very clearly. I came over to his house. He was getting something out of the refrigerator. I said, Reverend, Reverend, I got a contract to write a book about you, because I always was with him wherever he went. I went there. He was exciting. I couldn't stop following him. And he never could stop letting me follow him because we would always make headlines. But he looked at me and he said, Barbara, don't write the book. And later, um, I could understand why. He knew I was a reporter. And uh, I really believed in telling the good, the bad, and the ugly that I was not going to be a PR person for him. But I was going to get to the truth. And at that point, I thought 
everything was going to be positive and wonderful. But you know, it just didn't turn out that way. Jesse Jackson was a child of the Jim Crow era. Born in 1941, he grew up in South Carolina amid racial segregation and state-sponsored discrimination. If you guys don't understand the connection that we have with the colored people. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. For myself, I would not like to attend the schools with the white children because of the fact that we aren't welcome. In his early years, Jackson was bullied for his out-of-wedlock birth. His mother was a 16-year-old high school student, and his father was her 33-year-old married neighbor. Still, Jackson succeeded. He was elected class president at his racially segregated high school. He finished 10th in his graduating class. He was a three-sport varsity athlete. I was arrested July 1960 with several classmates trying to use a public library. While home on break after his freshman year of college, Jackson staged a sit-in at the whites-only library in his hometown of Greenville, South Carolina. Seven other black students joined him, including high school student Marjorie Crosby. And we went in there to sit down just to read a book. Police arrested them less than 20 minutes later. I couldn't go in the library and read a book because of the color of my skin. The year was 1960. Jackson was 19 years old. Okay, so before we get into Jesse's activism, I do want to talk a little bit about his early childhood. Jackson grew up in poverty. You know, this was the Jim Crow segregated South. So, Jonathan, did those early days affect your father at all? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. Even in his campaign speeches, from the guttermost to the uttermost, from the outhouse to the White House, when he was running for president, one zinger in the speech that always kind of caught me is when he would go in third person talking, saying, people ask, what is Jesse Jackson running for? And he would say, you don't know where I'm running from. Mm. Whoa, where did that come from? Wow. You would see it in his speech pattern where he would start talking uh, passionately, instilling that message that you can overcome your circumstances. Hey, that's some bars right there. You don't know what I'm running from. I love that. Barbara, I'd like to ask you about your research into Jackson's early life. So he didn't learn who his biological father was until he was just seven years old. He was taunted by classmates for being, quote, a nobody with no daddy. So do you think there's truth to the suggestion that some of those schoolyard taunts about Jesse, all that adversity sort of motivated him and pushed him to succeed? Right. I want to tell you just, you know, how deeply it affected him. Mm. One of his teachers, Mrs. Norris, she said, I remember Jesse as a sharp dresser. He wore suits and ties when other students were wearing blue jeans. In fact, uh, envious teenagers used to playfully tease him about his penchant for dignified dress, which he wore along with that, what was considered a superior attitude. And he said one day, uh, Jesse heard a front porch coffee sipper quip, there goes Noah's bastard, thinking he's better than everybody else. Look how he's dressed. And Jesse will around and respectfully told her, go ahead, call me what you want. I am Noah's bastard, and that's what you want to call me. But one day, you'll be proud to know this bastard. Wow. I had the, the privilege 
of going back home with him to Greenville, 1973. And it was culture shock to see the eye of the change that the King movement had got. Whites and Blacks were lined up on the sidewalk when the integrated high school bands burst into music. There was a homemade welcome sign, Hey Bo Diddley, and that's the name that they used to call Jesse in his community. And his speech was remarkable. You know, I was there looking, and I said, could this be uh, him thinking about Jack the Grocer? When he was eight years old, he went into a store, and he called for a white man to, to come and, and, and help him, and the, and the grocer had a gun to his head and said, don't you ever demand a white man to do anything. Was he thinking about that man? Was he thinking about the gossip monger who called him a bastard when he was 14? And at that moment, I mean, in my own eyes, he looked almost angelic. And I said to myself, there, told you so. I told you I'd be the best damn bastard you've ever seen. Oof. Talk about self-fulfilling prophecy and someone who really speaks the I am somebody mantra. Um, the Reverend Jackson knew early he was going to be somebody. Uh, and we just heard some tape about the sit-in at the Greenville Public Library. Uh, Jesse, he was just 19 years old at the time. What prompted him to lead seven other students in a sit-in at his hometown library? I mean, he could not just take things as they were, as many people did. Uh, he wanted to overcome it personally, but after a while, it was not about him. He was really, at a young age, becoming a symbol. What you do to me, you're doing to others, and I'm going to fight for both. He ran for everything. In fact, some of the students in his school would say, why didn't Jesse stop running for everything? We can't run for anything. But yet, they were voting for him. So this became part of who he was to stand up for himself, and he began to understand he could also stand up for other people. Now that Greenville 8 group, it's not a group that is given the level of attention that other sit-in protests of that era actually got, uh, but it did successfully desegregate the library system there. Jonathan Barber just talked about that stigma around race and how, you know, the Reverend Jesse Jackson wanted to push through that. What is this moment with this sit-in? Tell us about your father. Him coming to the aid of countless people and meeting them at their point of pain is something that I'm very familiar with, his ability to empathize and sympathize. So for those that are voiceless and those that are downtrodden, that's a call to action for him rather instinctively. Um, he oftentimes says, stay with the eagles and not with the snakes, that you have to rise above circumstances, rise above your pain, and stay focused on the goal. So he's never dwelled on it, never shared all these personal stories with us. I am in class listening to this now. It's not something he carries. It's where he's from, but it's not who he is. It's not what he reflects upon, frankly. And so I'm learning a lot today. So what's that like for you? You know, learning so much about your dad, who, I mean, you've obviously known for so long already. And right now you can, you continue to hear uh, new things that you probably hadn't heard before. Exactly. So in so many ways, I've not studied my dad. I've not like, I don't think it's appropriate for me to 
analyze him at a certain level. That's not my place. So I love him for who he is. Jesse Jackson would finish his bachelor's degree in sociology at North Carolina A&T with a B.A. in 1964. Then he went to seminary school at a Chicago Theological Seminary. Then he was later ordained a Baptist minister. So, Frank, you've been working alongside the Jackson family for 50 years. And it was about this time that Jackson met Dr. Martin Luther King at an airport. What happened there? I understand they kind of met in passing, I believe. You know, accidentally, Reverend Jackson went up uh, and introduced himself, and uh, I'm sure they had, you know, brief conversation and got on their planes and went on their separate ways. Frank, let me add one thing to that and to put it in context, because he's reflected upon that uh, meeting several times with me. At that point, my father had gained a level of uh, visibility, having been arrested in the school, and Reverend Martin Luther King had recognized him. Keep in mind, Reverend Martin Luther King's only like 14 years older, roughly, than my father and the other generation. So there was some connection on recognizing that you all are the students that are doing things in this region. I really think that meeting Dr. King was what helped him really become a preacher. But it doesn't seem like Dr. King was, you know, that impressed with Jesse at the time. As I see it, you know, Jackson was a little more than a face in the crowd to King, but he kept cropping up. Alabama, 1965. Jesse Jackson joined Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 50-mile march beginning in Selma. The procession was broken up violently by state troopers and sheriff's deputies. But the group of as many as 25,000 protesters made it to the state capitol in Montgomery. We are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. After Selma, Dr. King and one of his main collaborators, James Bevel, picked Jackson to head the Chicago branch of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They made Jackson the national director of Operation Breadbasket. This song from the time celebrated the program, which was designed to improve economic conditions of African Americans across the country. Jackson remained a member of Dr. King's inner circle up until King's assassination outside a Memphis motel room on April 4th, 1968. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. The white people do not know it, but the white people's best friend is dead. Those last words you heard there were those of Jesse Jackson, who was in the nearby motel parking lot when Dr. King was killed. We're going to get back to that moment in just a minute. But first, Frank, what brought Jesse to Selma, Alabama in 1965? Well, on March the 7th, uh, a couple hundred people tried to march to Montgomery, Alabama, and the start of that march was across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. This is an unlawful assembly. This march will not continue. You have to they were attacked by state troopers when they reached the other side, indicating that they were not going to allow them to march. Reverend Jackson at that time, on March the 7th, 
was in Chicago at the Chicago Theological Seminary. He organized a group of students to go to Selma. When the march arrived in Montgomery, it had swelled to over 25,000 people. And it was at that point that Dr. King recognized Reverend Jackson's leadership skills, originally appointed him the Chicago director of Operation Breadbasket. That was, you know, a key turning point in his life. Well, you know, you also have to remember that Jesse, he had a, a, a deep disdain for the doom and groom traditional preachers because he felt that they'd given up on the world and were concentrating on the afterlife. So when he came across Dr. King, it was like th this was it. I mean, here was a man preaching about the things that, that we can change things. We just don't have to accept things. We are going to walk nonviolently and peacefully to let the nation and the world know that we are tired now. And I really think that um, Reverend Jackson, uh, he came from nowhere, but he came making speeches. And uh, Dr. King noticed him then. But some of King's staff said, well, who is this person? He, he wasn't locked up. He wasn't beaten. But, you know, Jesse kept pushing himself forward, you know, to just he, he acted like who he was, a leader. When Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, Jesse Jackson was close by. You know, Jonathan, this was a pivotal moment in American history. A key figure in the civil rights movement was killed in broad daylight. Has your father ever recounted this moment to you? How did he reason with it? Very seldom does he recount the moment. I think something that people oftentimes forget is that these are such young men. They laughed a lot. They were enjoying some minor successes at the moment. It's like everything was right. And then that gunshot, they could hear the crack. And I've asked my father on several times in several interviews about it. And he just freezes up and doesn't say anything. And it really uh, hurts me. And I think that people should put it in context. And let's say at arm's distance, someone assassinated someone right beside you. And still you have the courage to go forward. I call my father and those young ministers that got together, the greatest generation. They created the third American revolution. They led it not with arms, but with love, no guns. And uh, to see that was very painful. Now, Frank, I want to come over to you. You know, we, we just reiterated how young Jesse was at the time. What do you think this moment meant for him? Well, I think it was a... Uh a life-changing moment. Dr. King had come to Memphis to help the uh, garbage workers. They were staying at the Lorraine Hotel. He came out on the balcony and uh, Reverend Jackson said, hey, Doc, as soon as Dr. King turned around, that's when the shot was fired. They hit the ground. Apparently all the police were running toward the Lorraine and they were pointing saying, no, the shot came from over there. You know, go that way. Don't come over here. Barbara, you faced some heat for your reporting of this situation here. There were conflicting accounts, some accusing Reverend Jackson of embellishing how close he was to King in his final moments. Um, what did you hear? What did your reporting detail? 
Well, here's what happened. Playboy magazine, after the assassination, called Pippin Jackson the heir apparent to Martin Luther King. 100 news accounts claimed that Jackson cradled Dr. King, that he was the last man King spoke to before he died. Now, as a reporter, I was very interested. I had nothing to prove or not. But I said, I wonder what the people who were eyewitnesses, what did they see? And uh, they were very incensed because they said this did not happen. But Hosea Williams, who was there, said the only person who cradled Dr. King was Abernathy. And he was certainly there. He said, I am sure Reverend Jackson would not say to me that he cradled Dr. King. I'm sure he would not say to me that he even came near Dr. King. And Ben Branson said to me, my guess is Jesse smeared the blood on his shirt after getting it off the balcony. Jonathan, what do you make of these conflicting accounts? Have you heard them before? Has your father ever discussed them before? Well, um, some of which I would respectfully disagree with Miss Reynolds from my accounts of speaking with Reverend James Bevel, uh, Reverend uh, Billy Kyles. I was not there, of course. Uh, so there will be differences of opinion. And I think there's a bit of a pun and a play on word, uh, the new king as in in charge of something versus the mm-hmm. new Reverend Martin Luther King uh, that has to be separated. And I can see how people can conflate the two, that uh, Blacks are reasonable, have enough uh, intelligence. They know who they want to follow, who can lead them. You know, succession isn't uh, appointed you know, it's rather anointed people will follow leadership. So I would say that, you know, time is proven and life has gone on. I've met many of those ministers over time, Reverend Abernathy and so forth. And oftentimes in such a traumatic moment, people want to know what's next, who's next. And you can be accused of many different things, uh, but leadership has to come forward and assert itself is what I would say. And I wouldn't argue with that point at all. I have to go back and say, I reported what Abernathy said. And I'm not saying that Jesse didn't prove that he was the, the leader for that time, because I think he did. But it's also, uh, as a reporter, I couldn't see myself not, not giving the side that other people hadn't heard, because we have to somehow, you know, state the facts. And there's also a perspective on uh, the white press analyzing the African-American structure movement that may not be accurate. So they want to make sure that they're both sides, but what's the other side of slavery? What's the right side of it? It's just simply wrong. And so that's probably the last I would comment on that. And as a person in the media, I understood that the media always wanted that one spokesman because that one spokesman can be controlled. But I can say that Jackson returned to Chicago in flames. The people in the streets, they were tearing down windows. And Reverend Jackson, with his leadership skills, stood up and called for the looters to stop, for the violence to stop. And he rose 
from that period to be one of America's greatest leaders. More making in a minute. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. The years following Dr. King's death were trying for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. After clashing with Dr. King's successor, Ralph Abernathy, Jackson resigned and created his own organization, PUSH, People United to Save Humanity. Are the black communities in America being more seriously hit by the economic circumstances than white? Oh, indeed. Given the racism in the country, we're the last hired and the first fired. In time of war, the first drafted and and the first to die. Uh, When the nation proper is underemployed, we are unemployed and then stigmatized for being that way. Jackson pushed politicians to improve economic conditions for black and poor people. Now the challenge is upward mobility. And that is why the focus on not only getting in school, but producing in school becomes a a new kind of challenge. He pushed the Republican Party to seek out black votes. He pushed for more boycotts. He ran programs for housing and social services and voter registration. All right, Frank, this was around the time when you arrived on the scene and you basically been with the Jackson family ever since. In 1967, you moved to Chicago. You got involved in Operation Breadbasket. Can you tell us some of the national boycotts Jesse championed and what you were a part of? Well, we started, uh, you know, with small uh, stores in the black community. Uh, Originally, black people were manufacturing certain products, but they weren't being displayed on the stores in the black community. And we insisted that they give shelf space to Baldwin ice cream and Joe Louis milk. And and then we moved up to bigger things. We took on Anheuser-Busch, eventually led to a boycott. Bud is a dud. We took on Coca-Cola, don't choke on Coke. We signed what we called moral covenants with them and basically dealt in four areas. One, that they have a black on their board of directors to set policy, that they hire contractors. And lastly, we insisted that they engage with philanthropy, that they, they were giving to someone, were they giving to the United Negro College Fund? Were they supporting the NAACP? Were they supporting the Urban League, et cetera? So those were the four areas, policy, jobs, contracts, and philanthropy that we insisted that they engage in. So that's what Fred Basket and eventually Push became known for, breaking down racial barriers in the private sector. And Jonathan, you're currently the national spokesman for Rainbow Push. Reverend Jackson wanted politicians and political parties, including the Republican Party, to compete for black votes. That was like a big objective for him. Did he accomplish that goal? Oh, absolutely. Um, So, as you know, at that time in 1961, uh, blacks were Republicans, Lincoln Republicans. Reverend Martin Luther King's father was Republican then, but it was for equal rights. It wasn't this reactionary uh, 
people that are out there today. It was much more about inclusion. When you see something wrong, you fix it. Uh, Ronald Reagan, in recent history, when he was campaigning, came by my father's offices at Rainbow Push to try to make an appeal on economic opportunities. But uh, the idea of being able to talk to Republicans was very normal. And it wasn't uh, a separation. It might have been a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. It wasn't radical having Blacks in the Republican Party. Barbara, Reverend Jackson's successes were no doubt a result of his oratorical skills. Where did Reverend Jackson learn to be such a powerful speaker? People uh, like to say that he, he learned from Dr. King. I'm sure he did. But first of all, uh, if I'm correct, his father's father was was a preacher. Yes. And uh, he had a twin who was a preacher. And they had a church there in Greenville. And so, you know, he taught the cadence, really, of what you hear in the black church. The black preachers are the most eloquent speakers that they that they are. I mean, his ability to rhyme, you know, that that that's what the the great marketers today get paid billions to come up with something that will stick in your mind from his um, down with dope and up with hope. You know, he had he had a way of condensing pathos into words that that remembered in our hearts, but also uh, became part of our soul experience. Jonathan, do you remember the first time you saw your father give a speech or a sermon? I don't. Um, it's been a part of my life. It's um, a Saturday morning for me was not watching cartoons or going to sports camp. It was going to the Operation Push headquarters and being in a pew and eating candy and nodding off, dozing and waking up in between person speeches and singing and Ben Branch and Thomas Dorsey. Legends. It was black and white. So it's white ministers, uh, Gary Masoni and others from the seminary. There were African-American ministers. And I actually thought the world was more integrated in these places than it actually is or was because our inner circle was so integrated. If this country has the judgment it ought to have, I present to you the next president of the United States, Jesse Jackson. In 1984, Jesse Jackson sought the Democratic Party's nomination for president. This is not a perfect party. We are not a perfect people. Yet we are called to a perfect mission. Jackson did not win the nomination. Early in the primaries, an anti-Semitic remark derailed his campaign. Reports surfaced that Jackson had privately referred to Jews as Jaime's. After a week of denials, Jackson tonight admitted making that remark. It cost him at the polls and ended with an apology. If there were occasions when my grape turned into a raisin and my jaw bear lost its resonance, please forgive me, charge it to my head and not to my heart. But Jackson, originally considered a fringe candidate, did win four state contests and 3.2 million votes. He was just the second African-American to run a nationwide campaign for president, and he finished third. In 1984, I believed that Jesse Jackson was right on the issues, but I didn't vote for him because I didn't think he could win. In 1988, Jesse Jackson is right on the issues, and I think that he is the best candidate for working men and women of the state of New Hampshire. 
In 1988, he ran again and more than doubled his prior successes. He won 11 state contests and briefly led the pack of Democratic candidates. Jesse Jackson for president. But he lost in 88 as well, his last campaign for the presidency. Jesse Jackson was soundly defeated in Pennsylvania, getting less than a third of the votes. At the Democratic National Convention that year, he delivered one of the most celebrated speeches of his career. I was born in Islam, but Islam was not born in me. And it wasn't born in you. It was a spectacular speech. I I really was moved to tears. It was incredible. If Jesse can come from nowhere and be somebody, I can be somebody too. Hold your head high. Stick your chest out. You can make it. Before Obama, Jackson was the first black man to have a serious shot at winning the office of the presidency. He's the first to win a major party primary. So, Frank, I'll start with you. What memories do you have from that first campaign in 1984? Well, the first memory I have um, in 84, they had a winner take all system. Democrats did. So if you got 49 percent of the vote in a state, you. <laughs> You didn't get any delegates. If the other person got 51%, we changed the rules in the Democratic Party to proportionality. So when you saw in all the races leading up, and especially in 2020, people were talking about the 15% threshold. They were really talking about the Jackson rule, which is what we changed between 84 and 88. It's what allowed Barack Obama to win the nomination and then eventually become the president of the United States. Yeah, really seeing that impact there. Jonathan, what memories do you have from that 84 campaign? Yep. So in 1984, to see Mayor Marion Barry give my father a, a head of state entourage to go through the same Constitution Street that hosted the Klan now many years later, and then by 1988, I started um, finishing college. And I realized since 1619, it's 369 years later, an African-American is now uh, seeking the highest office in the land. And you can see the, the rotunda in the Capitol and know all the history. And um, my father had a leg up. And so, and the community began to believe in itself. Many people did not know the voting rules, how we could vote. So he had to do years of voter education and voter registration to lay the groundwork, and then people believe. And so, sure, by a will of force, he was able to do that. Coming out of Michigan, I want to go back to your montage, is uh, ultimately my father won Michigan. The press had already left town because it was a foregone conclusion that uh, someone else would win. And then it was a shocker. So we were leaving Michigan, going into New York, and there was a writer um, who said that Reverend Jackson said, Jaime Town, and then the world got turned upside down. No recording, no video, no tape. Um, this is his word, working for a white media outlet that had all this gravitas and this person's word. And then that's what happened going into New York. There's not any anti in my father's body or bones at all. And then the script was flipped, you know, sleight of hand. 
And so, although he apologized, we were all in that area vicinity. That's not his spirit. But when blacks work for certain white patrons, you got to watch them because they have to come down with a majority white opinion on describing blacks to help earn their salaries. So, and there's nothing new about that, you know. And uh, well, this was this was definitely a, a pivotal moment in that campaign, no doubt. Um, Barbara, I'll bring you in here. Uh, it was a conversation with a Washington Post reporter where he allegedly used that pejorative term um, and it blew up. Barbara, can you explain from your perspective what had happened here? I don't know what happened. Um, I didn't hear it. I just saw it reported. At the time, you know, being uh, um, one of the first black uh, reporters in, on the mainstream press, negative stereotypes was what was the often menu uh, that blacks weren't good enough. They they weren't smart enough. And, and to see a strong, intelligent, brilliant black man stand up like he did and debate the issues with such a plume uh, really um, cast a spell over the, the uh, colleagues that I was looking at. They seemed to be shocked that this man uh, was, was even there. He had virtually no television ads. He had an inexperienced campaign staff who had never, uh, most of them had never worked with anybody running for president. But by his estimates, he said he won 3.5 million votes, spent less than 3 million in comparison to about 31 million spent by Walter Mondale and 17 million spent by Gary Hart. Uh, his race was supposed to be one of the most cost efficient in history. But here's the thing, you know, we talked about when he ran, uh, the people down the ballot w- were running. It seemed like he just opened up a, a, a flood of people were saying, it's, it's now is my time to get in the race. It was about uh, tens of thousands of people running in the states for school boards, sheriff, state legislators. I mean, he was transforming the the uh, congressional and, and state uh, infrastructure of America because when he ran, we won. I think that when he lost, we still won. You cannot rule out what Reverend Jackson did, and it's so much attributed to the win of our first black president, Barack Obama. And, the, and if I could add to that, thank you, Ms. Reynolds, is uh, headlines on certain newspapers in 1988 as we're reading, and we got to talk about the racism in the media and the journalism, um, is it legal for him to run? Wow. Yeah. They just couldn't take it, <laughs> you know, Jonathan, that <laughs> this man... Uh, did not come to them to ask, could he do it? <laughs> so what else could they do but say, now, should he do it? <laughs> and you see the parallels in how Barack Obama was treated when he ran in 2008 with birtherism. Uh, this, this idea of, can you? Are you even allowed to? Can you legally do it? You, you kind of it's, it's, it's eerie how you see history kind of repeat itself. Yes. I want to wrap here with everybody with our final question. We talked about the impact on the political system, but what is Reverend Jackson's legacy here when we take in, you know, his activism, the president's presidency, the politics? What impact did all this have on American history itself? 
Yeah, I don't think uh, American politics will ever be the same again. What was started in 84 and 88, uh, politics doesn't operate, you know, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. It takes time for things to uh, gel. And so what you're seeing now with all these young people of color and gay lesbian people and women and the people that were in the coalition in 84 and 88 are now running for office. So I think Reverend Jackson changed politics forever. I, I have to just bring another dimension in here because we say he was a civil rights leader, but he was also an international leader. And he's not perfect. And, and he'll tell you, he'll be the first to tell you that he's not perfect, like none of us are perfect. But when you look at it and then you look at the leadership crisis for today, that is scandalous, that is toxic. You don't almost want to put a crown on his head. This has been Making Jesse Jackson. A great discussion here. Special thanks to Jonathan Jackson, Frank Watkins, and Barbara Ann Reynolds. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for asking us. You're superb. This episode of Making was produced by Justin Boole and Hina Trivastava. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Be sure to check out the Jackson biography by Barbara Ann Reynolds. It's titled Jesse Jackson, America's David. More episodes are on the way. Be sure to press the subscribe button and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.